What's up everyone? Welcome to No Filter. I'm your host, Anna Kasparian. And later in the show, we will have a special guest on to discuss the escalating tensions between the United States and Iran. It's a foreign policy issue that everyone should be paying attention to rather than having meltdowns on Twitter about the way Game of Thrones ended. I mean, that seems a little silly when there are other things to be concerned about. We're also going to talk about something that I think is incredibly important, which is the economic situation, not just for millennials, but for Americans overall. Of course, it's a topic that I've touched on before, but there's a conservative who wrote an op-ed for the New York Times that drove me crazy, and this is my response to him, so we'll get to that later. But before we get to all the news, just a few announcements I wanna make. Next week is Memorial Day, so we will not be filming an episode of No Filter. The following week, though, we will have a good friend of mine on the show, Michael Brooks, to discuss Brazilian politics and a political prisoner by the name of Lula da Silva. Silva, he knows a lot about him, has written a book about Brazilian politics, and I'm really looking forward to that. But in the meantime, during that week that we have off, I just hope that you guys use that as an opportunity to catch up on some of the shows you may have missed on No Filter, or go check out Michael Brooks, go check out Damage Report with John Iderola. There's a lot of great programming out there. And look, I would argue that you should probably be enjoying some time with your friends, your loved ones. Hopefully you get Memorial Day off, but if you don't, there's plenty of content to catch up on. All right, let's get started with the show. Remember this Joe Biden video that recently went viral? The younger generation now tells me how tough things are. Give me a break. No, no, I have no empathy for it. Give me a break. Because here's the deal, guys. We decided we were gonna change the world, and we did. We did. We finished the civil rights movement to the first stage. The women's movement came to be. So my message is, get involved, there's no place to hide. Look, the dismissive nature of Biden's statement upset a lot of young people in America for reasons that should be fairly obvious at this point. First off, part of changing the world for the better is to draw attention to the issues at play. But when millennials do so, they inevitably get mocked or belittled like Biden just demonstrated in that video. Secondly, if you're running for president, You're supposed to be looking to lead the country and improve people's lives. It's impossible to do that if the concerns of an entire generation are brushed off as nothing to be worried about. Of course, there are some who love Biden sprinkling that salt on the open wounds of America's youth. And New York Times opinion columnist Brett Stevens is one example. In an op-ed titled, Dear Millennials, The Feeling is Mutual, Stevens argues, quote, no faction on the Democratic side more richly deserves rebuking than the one Biden singled out. These younger generations that specialize in historic self-pity and moral self-righteousness usually communicated via social media with maximum snark. Apparently, Stevens doesn't understand the meaning of irony because he literally dedicated an entire op-ed to being annoyingly misguided and snarky. He then goes on to avoid addressing any of the financial struggle felt by millennials and lumps all of them together as this monolithic group that just wants to censor conservatives like him on college campuses. Look, we'll get to that in just a second. But before we do, I'd like to talk about the economic woes of my generation since Stevens failed to do so. 
Just this morning, the Wall Street Journal, which is the furthest thing from a progressive or liberal publication, put out a story regarding the true nature of economic hardship for millennials, writing that Americans born between 1981 and 1996 have failed to match every other generation of young adults born since the Great Depression. They have less wealth, less property, lower marriage rates, and fewer children. Millennial households had an average net worth of about $92,000 in 2016. That's nearly 40% less than Gen X households in 2001, of course, adjusted for inflation, and about 20% less than baby boomer households in 1989. Part of the problem is that the economy crashed just as a giant group of millennials were graduating college and entering the job market. And Americans who entered the labor market when unemployment rates rose by five points, about the same as the 2007 to 2009 recession, saw their cumulative earnings fall by 10% over the first decade of a career. Millennials may never catch up with the generations of Americans that preceded them. Combine record student loan debt, record consumer debt, and the inability to afford property, and you have a gross cocktail of a generation left behind. These trends are not only devastating for millennials today, but also extremely problematic for the country's future. Social safety net programs like Social Security and Medicare aren't going to have the funding they need because millennials are discouraged from having kids. Who can blame them? Kids are expensive as hell. Our current system is set up to have the young and healthy subsidize the sick and elderly. If millennials aren't having enough kids to replace themselves, then the whole system is in jeopardy. But why address all these legitimate issues when you can just antagonize young people instead? Stevens does exactly that, writing, quote, all of these struggle sessions play to the sound of chortling 20-somethings who have figured out that in today's culture, the quickest way to acquire and exercise power is to take offense. This is easy to do because the list of sins to which one may take offense grows with each passing year, from the culturally appropriated sombrero to the traditionally gendered pronoun. Why is Stevens avoiding a deep dive into the uncomfortable economic reality for millennials while simultaneously smearing an entire generation as children concerned about silly things like sombreros? Oh, that's right. Maybe it was the pathetic lack of critical thinking by people like Stevens who created this whole mess in the first place. Why take ownership or responsibility for stupid decisions like pushing for a costly preemptive war with Iraq, which is what Stevens did, when you can just sit on your high horse and act like you're somehow above the garbage that destroyed the future of this country? Stevens argues that Biden could make a virtue of the defect by emphasizing his distance from everything that defines the worst aspects of millennial culture, the coddled minds and censorious manner and inability to understand the way the world works. Wait, wait a minute, did the guy who supported the war in Iraq just try to argue that young people are the dumb ones? I guess none of this should be surprising coming from a man who attended the London School of Economics, which was the very hub that shaped the modern perception of free market economics. Crony capitalism isn't the bug, but rather the feature for people like Stevens. But please, don't be fooled in the efforts to divide Americans based on age or gender or race. 
This is about the haves and have nots. The same financial stress young people are feeling is very true of every generation at this point. Sure, the instability is more pronounced for millennials. But the fact is that the widening wealth gap demonstrates that there are two diverging financial realities. Meredith Riley, a 37-year-old social worker in New Jersey, used to think of herself as middle class. It was a good life, it, it really was, it was wonderful. And now, if I don't go to work, I don't get paid. Her county job, which paid about $50,000 a year, was eliminated in the recession. A single mother of two, Riley now works three part-time jobs and makes less money. I think the toughest part is not preparing a future for my children that my parents prepared for me. Barely half of adults are now middle income earners, defined as a household making between $42,000 and $126,000 annually. The percentage has been falling steadily since 1971. Richard Fry, who co-authored a new Pew Research study, says that as the middle class has hollowed out, the upper income brackets grown from 14% to 21% of Americans. That upper class now takes home nearly half of all annual income in the U.S., 49% up from 29% in 1970. Hey, but no crying, okay? Biden has no empathy for you, and Brett Stevens is gonna go ahead and mock and judge you. So when Stevens is dismissing the concerns of millennials, just know that he's dismissing the economic struggle of all of us. Pew Research found that the middle class was hit the hardest from the recession, with median wealth dropping by a stunning 21% between 2001 and 2013. But again, don't cry to Biden about it because he's got no empathy for you. And if the lack of empathy is upsetting, good, you should be angry. But you can always count on goons like Brett Stevens to mock you because it seems the system has worked out real well for him. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Filter. Joining us now is Naira Huck, who is the CEO of Avicenna Strategy. She's also a serious XM talk show host, popular television commenter, and an international public affairs consultant. Naira, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Anna. So I wanted to focus our conversation on some foreign policy, particularly the escalating tensions between the United States and Iran. It appears that things are certainly moving toward the direction of war, and it's certainly something I'm concerned about. But I wanted to get your thoughts. Where do you believe we are right now? And is there a way for us to prevent the Trump administration from engaging in war with Iran? Listen, we're not in a good place when it comes to foreign policy in general, particularly in the Middle East where Donald Trump has outsourced US foreign policy to Israel on one side and Saudi Arabia on the other. Both countries are interested in engaging Iran militarily. They have been for years and they tried to do that in the Obama administration. But Obama turned around and said, listen, we need to be able to do diplomacy and bring people to the table to solve these problems. Iran is not a good actor in the region. But Donald Trump with John Bolton, the architect of the Iraq war has made it clear he is absolutely open to provoking a military option and embedding the United States in a war that it's not guaranteed to win. So over the weekend, Trump gave an interview to Fox News, of course, and he was asked about Iran and what his 
plan is. And I thought his answer was interesting because it did show a little bit of a difference between the president and John Bolton, his national security advisor. Let's take a quick look. I ended the Iran nuclear deal. And actually, I must tell you, I had no idea it was gonna be as strong as it was. It totally, the country is, is devastated from the standpoint of the economy. But now you see, the, the thing that I think a lot of people are worried about is that they heard what you said in 2016 and liked it when you said no more stupid wars. And then they hear these stories about troops and so I on. just don't want them to have nuclear weapons. And they can't be threatening us. And you know, with all of, uh, I just, I just want to with all of everything that's going on, and I'm not one that believes, you know, I'm not somebody that wants to go into war. Because war hurts economies, war kills people, most importantly, by far, most importantly. Right. You do have a group, and they call it the military-industrial complex. They never want to leave. They always want to fight. No, I don't want to fight. But you do have situations like Iran. You can't let them have nuclear okay. weapons. You just can't let that happen. So. My interpretation is that Trump seems to be saying two different things that conflict with one another. On one hand, he's arguing, <laughs> I mean, it's not very surprising. Trump has the habit of doing that. But on one hand, he's saying Iran can't have nuclear weapons. I mean, he's the one who decided to rip up the Iran nuclear deal. And then on the other hand, you know, he argues, I don't want war. And he even brings up the issue of the military industrial complex. So which one is it? I mean, if you don't want war, then you should probably remain in this nuclear deal with Iran. So Donald Trump does not have his own ideology. And I think those of us who care about the direction of the country and not going to war can use that to our advantage, right? He is ultimately going to do what he thinks is either popular with his base or that his advisors are telling him are good for his electoral positioning. So if there is enough of an outcry from the foreign policy people, from progressives, from other leaders across the country, including corporate leaders who can see how this will affect the US economy if we are now on a third war front. I think there's an opportunity, particularly again on Fox News as they speak directly to Donald Trump, to build enough public outcry that he'll step back from doing something just because John Bolton wants him to do it. And John Bolton has been pushing for war with Iran and it's incredible because this is a man who was you know, one of the architects in the preemptive war in Iraq. And he apparently hasn't learned anything from it and is pushing for yet another war, which would be far greater in size because Iran is four times larger than Iraq is. Their military capability is very different from the military capability that we saw in Iraq. And so it would certainly draw in far more of our resources. It would definitely threaten many more lives and destabilize the region. Now. Interestingly enough, though, you have the United States and the Trump administration arguing that, oh, Iran is, is, is a threat, is an imminent threat. They're doing X, Y, and Z, even though they're not providing any evidence of them. You know, there was some accusation that they were blowing up oil tankers abroad, but there was no evidence given to show that Iran was really behind it. And then on the other hand, you see Iran's foreign minister give interviews to people like Chris Wallace. And I think what he says here is incredibly important because of what Trump is not only communicating to Iran, but what he's communicating to the world. Let's take a quick look at that. Engagement is not producing results in Iran. President Trump has made sure that the people of Iran would not believe in engagement. We approached the international community in good faith. 
we reached an agreement with the international community, with the United States, six other powers. President Trump, just because he disliked President Obama, just left that agreement without having read it. And people of Iran started to feel and started to see that engagement does not have dividends. That's a very bad message, not only that you're sending to the people of Iran, but you're sending to the rest of the world, that they should not rely on the signature of a president of the United States. So mm -hmm. does Foreign Minister Zarif have a point there? And is this leading to irreparable damage when it comes to the United States and our reputation? Well, it's following on a pattern that Donald Trump has already set about US reputation, right? Where everybody knows that Trump is a fickle leader and he can change his mind on a dime. And so he's not a reliable ally. When he's not a reliable ally, the United States is not a reliable ally. And you have John Bolton, who is always called for regime change. And that's code because regime change rarely happens without military intervention when the public in that country does not want it. And that's what the foreign minister is referring to, Iran is not like Iraq. It is a democracy in which people elect a leader. It is also has a, a very strong religious leadership that controls much of the culture of the society. But it's 81 million people strong. There's an opportunity to work with the Iranian people to undermine some of the religious bigotry and extremism and really prop them up. And yes, there's an opportunity to use economic tools like we have with sanctions to bring the leadership to the table to negotiate. That was the whole point of the Iran deal. It's not ideal, it's not working with great people, but what do you do to incentivize that the, the, all the powers that be to negotiate with you? Donald Trump and John Bolton are not interested in any of these diplomatic tools. And so what you'll see is them building this drumbeat and narrative that Iran is doing and, and, and you know bringing forward all this intelligence, whether it's made up or not about Iran behaving against US interests, attacking US interests. None of that is new though. So they're going to try to present this in a way that will incite Americans who are not aware of how things are in the region and incite them to support an all out war effort. And I think that's what we really have to be careful about is not falling for the public narrative ploy that John Bolton is going to be playing on the American public. You know, of all the things that Trump's base demands, I would argue that they are certainly right when it comes to not supporting these interventionist wars. And Trump certainly did run a platform that, that focused on, hey, let's get our troops back. Let's, let's stop engaging in these costly wars, we're wasting money. And so Bolton's got a lot of work to do if he's going to persuade the American people, the majority of whom do not want war with Iran. And fascinating, it's fascinating to see how Bolton is currently responding to some of the critics, including the foreign minister of Iran. On the same day that the foreign minister was interviewed by Chris Wallace, so was John Bolton. And here is his reaction to the critics, let's take a look. Ambassador, as you just heard, Foreign Minister Zarif says you're part of the B team, a small group of leaders, you in the US, others in the Middle East, Bibi Netanyahu, bin Salman, bin Zaid, who are working to try to 
steer President Trump into a conflict with Iran. Your response? Well, he also said in another interview he, he wished he were working with the A-team. You know, in the past few days, the North Koreans have also called me dim-sighted. The Cubans have said I'm a pathological liar. I'd say I've had a pretty good week. So there's Bolton for you. Everyone's calling me an idiot because I've been a complete and utter failure when it comes to foreign policy. But to me, that's a good week. I mean, it's it's amazing how he's unwilling to take any responsibility for the failures of US foreign policy. And many of these issues, he was behind, including invading Iraq. He has continued to fail up, right? And we are all, I think, amazed at, at just how so many older white men are able to fail up in American society, and particularly in the Trump administration. And the talk about town here in DC is that John Bolton's days may be numbered. If he's getting out ahead of his skis here and really pushing openly for a war, going on Fox News and advocating for it, hoping it'll convince his own boss to do that against campaign promises that have been made, against the general American public sentiment that is weary and fatigued about supporting wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. I think John Bolton's days may be numbered. And then frankly, that leadership change when Trump does not have loyalty to John Bolton over loyalty to his own political interests. That is also, I think, something that could be to the progressive advantage when it comes to maintaining some kind of peace in the Middle East region. I certainly hope so. Naira Huck, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your insight and the conversation. Thank you, Anna, anytime. All right, everyone, we will be right back. Welcome back. We have about a minute left, and I just want to give you some final thoughts on today's show. Look, in the first segment, I know that I got a little heated in regard to that op-ed in the New York Times. And I just want you guys to understand that all of these little issues that we keep hearing about, right? Millennials versus baby boomers, immigrants versus US citizens, men versus women, the transgender community versus weird wannabe intellectuals like Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson. These are nonsense issues. Like there are social problems that we need to focus on, but the one thing that really unites all of us, regardless of age, race, sex, sexual orientation, is the economy and the fact that we're struggling and we need to unite and fight together and demand more. Let's please stop allowing these politicians and these op-ed writers in the New York Times divide us. It's nonsense and we deserve more. Thank you so much for watching the show and special thanks to all the hardworking people here, the crew, the producers that make this show possible. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave us a five star review wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps to get us featured on these platforms. And if we're featured, more people get to listen and more people get to learn from the content that we've researched and produced. Thank you again, and we'll see you in two weeks with a new episode of No Filter.